Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome back to New Books in Business History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ashton Merck. I'm one of the hosts um, for this channel. Today, I'll be talking to Kaylee Haran about her new book, Insurance Era, Risk, Governance, and the Privatization of Security in Postwar America. I'm so excited to be having this conversation with you, Kaylee. So I just want to start off really quick with um, one of my favorite parts about sort of how you frame this book. Uh, early on, you describe insurance as a technology. So what exactly is insurance and why should we care about it? Um, hi, Ashton. Thank you hi. for having me here. I'm really excited to chat with you about the book. Um, okay, insurance as a technology. Um, I guess one of the things that got me interested about this topic in the first place is the sensibility uh, that's shared by a lot of Americans that we kind of know what insurance is almost instinctively. Uh, so it feels obvious or natural somehow, even though we don't always know how it works or why exactly. Um, so insurance is both obscure and mysterious on one hand, and then obvious and boring on the other. Um, and that to me is really fascinating. Uh, so very early in the research process, uh, I realized that one of my primary tasks would be to denaturalize insurance. Uh, so to call into question what people think they already know about it by revealing how uh, the very specific form of privatized insurance we have today in the U.S. developed uh, and really took root over the course of the 20th century. So that form of insurance, which is the dominant form in the U.S. today, is really just one um, of many forms that insurance has taken over the past several centuries. Uh, so I guess put simply, insurance is the process through which groups of people share or spread risk, uh, typically by pooling resources and distributing them to those who encounter misfortune. Uh, so this is a broad definition. Uh, we could discuss debates uh, surrounding the actuarial nature of insurance. Uh, so by actuarial, I mean the use of statistical data to calculate and price risk. Uh, we could talk about differences between insurance provided by public or private institutions and the various ways those institutions determine who gets access to insurance, how much they pay for it, and so on. But I do think that on the most, really the most basic level, insurance is a redistributive project uh, that offers compensation for misfortune through collective means. Uh, And I think that might sound strange to a lot of people. uh, And that's because over the past 75 years or so in the U.S., the primary providers of insurance, private corporations, have worked very hard to mask the collective nature of insurance and convince Americans that uh, it's an individual pursuit based on a contract between a single individual and a company. Uh, But as for your your question about insurance as a technology, 
Um, insurance is a social technology uh, in the sense that it's a tool uh, that can be used to achieve a variety of ends. So in the book, I'm especially interested in insurance as a tool of governance, uh, one that can be used to shape the conduct of human beings. So there are lots of examples of this. Um, insurance institutions set the terms of liability uh, and uh, thus help define the meaning of responsibility. Uh, they determine the boundaries of groups through which people share and spread risk. Uh, and by creating a system of incentives, uh, insurance providers can also directly shape people's behavior. Uh, so I use the term technology in quotes uh, in much the same way other scholars, um, particularly people who follow Foucault, have used it. So insurance is a technology in the sense that it can be and has been used as a tool or a device, I guess, for ordering, supervising, governing, and sometimes even shaping individuals and populations. So you asked why we should care. <laughs> um, I like this question. It's a wonderful question. Um, I think that right there um, is one reason to care about insurance, but there are lots and lots of others. Um, for one, it's an almost inescapable aspect of economic life in most liberal capitalist societies. Uh, so in the U.S., for example, we're required by law to carry um, certain forms of insurance. It's also one of the primary ways we determine who gets access to social resources like healthcare, uh, and because most insurance institutions classify risk, which I, I suspect we'll probably talk about, um, it also plays a major role in determining who has the ability to build wealth, uh, to own and maintain property, uh, to participate fully, really, in a fundamentally uncertain world. So understanding how insurance works, who benefits from it, uh, and why, I think is important for anyone who wants to understand and ideally play a role in deciding how resources are distributed in a given society, how that society is organized, and ultimately how its members are cared for. Yeah, that's that's like the perfect answer, I think, in lots of ways. <laughs> no, it just gets at all of the all of the different sort of elements of that question. Um, and speaking, sort of pulling off of the points about insurance as a technology of redistribution, it's sort of in that way is kind of fitting that your book begins in this immediate aftermath of the passage of the Social Security Act. Um, another sort of technology of redistribution that's kind of also intentionally masking that redistributive quality. Um, and so you could talk a little bit about that, but I'm, I'm mostly mentioning this because you note that this, this moment, the Social Security Act is not the beginning of the story for insurance. So before we get into sort of your original findings and like the contribution your book is making, can you just sort of like, Give us the quick overview in, of some of the earlier developments in insurance that you kind of alluded to about sort of like mutual aid um, and so on in the 19th and early 20th century. Sure. Um, great question. Uh, okay. So historians of the U.S. have only sort of somewhat recently turned their attention to insurance. And I feel really lucky actually to have more or less stumbled into this very dynamic, very congenial and small, but really growing field. So other scholars who came before me have done a lot, uh, I think, to reveal the earlier history of insurance as it developed uh, and as it was institutionalized in the U.S. during the 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, so John Levy's book, Freaks of, Freaks of Fortune, for example, uh, charts the process through which risk was commodified by insurers during the 19th century. Uh, and he focuses a lot on the impacts of that commodification on American capitalism. Uh, Dan Bauck's book, How Our Days Became Numbered, uh, focuses on the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, and Dan offers this deep dive into the methods used by actuaries and other insurance workers to classify, quantify, and calculate risk. 
Uh, you have historians like Sharon Ann Murphy and Kristen Ford Chapin, Christy Ford Chapin, uh, who study particular fields of insurance like life or health. Um, and then you still have other um, historians that have um, examined alternatives to commercial coverage. So, for example, fraternal societies in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, and of course, as you know, the welfare state, which is really a separate subfield with its own unique historiography. Um, so there is also a lot of, um, for me at least, very important work on insurance by sociologists and legal scholars, uh, many of whom, like me, are interested in the governing functions of insurance. So Viviana Zelizer, Jonathan Simon, Tom Baker, um, and other kind of non-historians uh, have produced really sophisticated studies of insurance in the U.S. and elsewhere. Uh, and these are studies that emphasize the cultural significance of insurance, the moral questions it raises and answers, uh, and more recently, um, the role of insurance methods and logics in shaping other institutions like medicine or policing. Yeah. And so given all of that, that we already know about insurance and sort of this backdrop of that, um, tell us a little bit about sort of like what is new here and where your work is sort of building on those, on those findings in this sort of small, but dedicated community. Yeah. Um, well, my research kind of fits uh, in between these different literatures, both conceptually and chronologically. Um, so a lot of the work on insurance produced by sociologists, for example, is, is incredibly rich theoretically, uh, but often presentist uh, to the point of being almost ahistorical. Um, and that's not necessarily a diss. Um, uh, but then most of the scholarship that's been written by historians of insurance in the U.S., it really stops roughly around the time period when my research begins in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, so my work picks up chronologically where other historians have left off, uh, which is during this, this period of immense change in the structure and function of the insurance industry in the U.S. And also, I guess, thinking uh, like American thinking about risk and security. And then at the same time, at least I hope, uh, my research <laughs> offers historical background that I think can add context and depth uh, to more theoretical claims about insurance that are made by sociologists, legal scholars and others that work outside of a historical register. Yeah, that's a, in some ways, I think that's a really sort of just not just for this topic, but for lots of topics, this is kind of an untapped area where there's like gaps between like what historians know and what other disciplines have written about. And there's really a space for work like this. Let's fill it. Other, that, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm trying to do, too. So we'll see. Um, OK, so let's with that in mind. So we're starting in, again, we start with the, the um, Social Security Act um, and part of what you document in this opening chapter, or the introduction rather, is this sort of resistance um, to further expansion of the welfare state beyond the Social Security Act. Like we have sort of an acceptance of like Social Security is here to stay, we can't roll it back, but there is this sort of feeling among American insurance companies that we have to sort of stop this before it gets worse. So can you just sort of open it, like give us some background on what were some of the things that American insurance companies were doing um, to kind of resist this expansion of the welfare state um, right. during the 1930s. Okay. Um, so uh, the book begins, as you know, with the New Deal and the passage of the Social Security Act. And I think it's difficult to convey just how distressing Social Security and other government programs were to leaders of the private insurance industry. Um, uh, insurers really saw government as a dangerous competitor 
in the market for security. Uh, and they also, I think, rightly feared nationalization, uh, which for them was the worst case scenario, um, or even just increased regulation of their business. Um, so there were many ways that insurers attempted to resist expansion of the welfare state um, and at the same time turn the tide really of public sentiment away from socialized responses to risk. Um, so a primary strategy involved crafting an ideological response to the New Deal, uh, one that uh, a response that elevated individual responsibility over collective risk sharing um, and that coded participation in public insurance programs as a form of dependency. Uh, so that kind of rhetoric, which is still with us today, really, in a lot of ways, uh, was introduced to Americans through insurance advertisements and marketing campaigns in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, some of these campaigns, which I write about, um, are actually pretty stunning, and they're clearly political messaging. Uh, they have slogans like, the only security is self-made. Um, and they have these uh, sort of o- overt calls to shrink the size and scope of government, just kind of right there in these ads. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and insurers actually pursued this kind of messaging well until the 1960s. Uh, so just for an example, one ad campaign from the early 50s uh, that I uh, write about um, offered actual scripts for people to use when contacting the representatives or government representatives um, to demand fewer government services. Um, so these ads, like, like those, that particular campaign and thousands of others were produced by the Institute for Life Insurance, uh, which was one of the first corporate public uh, relations organizations in the United States. Uh, the Institute was founded in uh, the mid-1930s with the specific goal um, of limiting government uh, encroachment into the insurance business. Uh, but insurers use lots of other strategies uh, to convince Americans to think of risk as something that should be borne by individuals rather than collectives. So in one of the chapters uh, of the book, for example, uh, I examine public service campaigns uh, launched by both life and property casualty insurers. Um, so life insurers were major early players in the field of public health, um, and they used public health campaigns focused on exercise, diet, stress management, uh, um, these kinds of things to encourage self-reflection and healthy behaviors. Um, and uh, the, the programs actually uh, served the industry by helping to limit claims because healthier customers are, are simply you know, cheaper to insure. Uh, and at the same time, they also attracted goodwill for the industry uh, and helped um, insurance leaders portray their business as a kind of beneficent public servant. Uh, and so this is mostly life insurance, but auto insurers also participated in similar um, kinds of uh, public outreach and um, service initiatives. Um, uh, mostly focused on uh, driver safety. So um, uh, the telematic devices that people install in cars today, they're kind of everywhere now. Um, They're the ones that offer premium discounts for safe driving uh, and also collect data that is sold to third parties. Uh, Well, these devices and and systems can be tracked uh, or traced really back to the post-war years when auto insurers first uh, started devising strategies for quantifying driving. Um, and developing new ways to classify risk. Um, so in the book, I write about the Aetna Drivo Trainer, um, which is a driver simulator from the 1950s that was used in driver safety classes. Um, and the simulator uh, actually had a lot of the same functions as the telematic devices that people are install- installing in cars today to get lower auto insurance rates. Um, I'm really fascinated by these things. Uh, so amazingly weird, but I think I'm getting off track. Um, the big point the big point is that... Um, Driver safety campaigns 
public health initiatives and a lot of other seemingly altruistic programs that um, insurance companies launched in the name of public service. These programs uh, had hidden goals and outcomes, uh, and a lot of them involved uh, invasive, invasive forms of surveillance. Uh, and they were really, I think, first and foremost, part of a larger effort to link insurance to individual rather than collective responsibility. Yeah, so to pick up on that point, I think what was interesting to me about that section of the book was the sort of emphasis on the sort of construction of this idea of self-made security and the emphasis on security as sort of a way of talking about and thinking about insurance and thinking about risk. And I can imagine that two things happened in the 1940s and 1950s, which is that you have World War II when conversations about national security sort of become at the forefront and this idea of collective action in the face of like national threats is really um, influential and effective. And then at the same time you have in the 1950s, you have this sort of the height of the Cold War and this sort of fear of collectivism. And so I can imagine both of those things sort of offering productive for you intellectually, maybe not for us as a society, but offering some tensions into how insurers have talked about risk. And so could you sort of talk about how maybe the onset of World War II and the Cold War affected or otherwise sort of changed their approach to thinking about security? Sure. Um, Well, certainly the Cold War uh, is profoundly important. Um, I don't I don't really see the approach of the industry changing significantly um, with World War II or even the Cold War, but the culture of security that developed during the Cold War, the spread of this like fervent anti-communism, these were like incredibly good for insurance companies. So the the do-it-yourself ethos and individualized approach to managing risk that the industry had been encouraging really since, since the early 1940s, I mean, it fit perfectly into a culture that celebrated private enterprise and feared collective organization. And of course, like suburbanization and the ideological doubling down on the nuclear family as the ideal organizational unit of society also served private insurers. Uh, So of course, people wanted to insure all of those cars, homes, and new consumer products that were uh, becoming available during um, the early post-war years. Um, And the imperative that breadwinners provide for and protect their families was, of course, also a huge boon for the industry. Um, And really, um, the the insurance industry and all all fields of insurance grew really exponentially during the the post-war years, aided, I think, in many ways by the um, uh, culture of security brought on um, by the Cold War. Yeah. And then another thing that's sort of related to this, chronologically anyway, um, but is actually a, the, the subsequent section of the book um, is the sort of, and I found it to be, it, this was sort of a perfect example of how you make something very familiar, be very strange, is um, the role that you describe insurance companies playing in real estate and housing during the mid 20th century. So how tell me how insurance companies made the suburbs. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, it surprised me too, I guess. Um, I didn't set out to devote almost like a third of the book to space and real estate. Um, but when I started looking into the investment strategies of major insurance companies, that role became immediately obvious to me. Um, so once I decided to follow the money, so to speak, um, it became very clear that insurance companies were major players uh, in shaping not just the post-war economy, but also the, the built environment. So uh, the insurance industry was the largest source of private capital in the United States for m- much of the 20th century. Uh, and I think what um, that industry chose to do with all that money really mattered. Uh, so, 
And shares sought uh, in their investments a large degree of control. Um, and they also wanted, of course, to yield a solid return over long periods of time. Uh, none of that is particularly surprising. But I was surprised by the degree to which insurance lenders use their investments in housing, commercial properties, and office spaces to achieve social and political goals, uh, and not just financial goals. So on the social front, uh, life insurers uh, were convinced that they could build affordable mass housing um, in urban centers in uh, the 1940s, uh, housing that they believed would help uh, create a, like a cleaner, healthier cities. And of course, these are laudable goals. Uh, and several of the urban housing developments built during that era by companies like uh, Metropolitan or New York Life, uh, those developments still exist and are considered really desirable places to live. Uh, so like places like uh, Stuyvesant Town in Manhattan or Fresh Meadows in Queens. But uh, many of the urban housing projects built by insurance companies during this era also involved slum clearance, uh, which devastated poor communities. Uh, so thousands of individuals and families were simply removed um, from the sites where these housing developments went up, um, and they were left with nowhere to go. Uh, and then the private housing that insurers built there, often on formerly public land, uh, that housing was closed off to low-income families and people of color. Uh, so uh, the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company had a very controversial whites-only policy in the housing developments that it built. Uh, and this, this policy attracted a ton of criticism but um, the company actually ended up winning battles in the courts on the basis that um, the housing was private uh, and thus immune to anti-segregation laws. Um, and so, in fact, most of the um, housing properties built by Metropolitan um, remained like 99% white uh, into the 1970s. Um, but by the early 1950s, uh, just to kind of go back in time, um, uh, life insurance companies started to withdraw from urban housing. Like they built these massive housing products uh, or projects, and then they started to withdraw really quickly within the space of just a few years, like 1951 to 1953. Um, I think one of the reasons is that these properties were really hard to manage. Uh, but the bigger one is that resistance from civil rights act activists um, uh, really attracted too much bad press. Um, so, Insurers started moving their investment dollars out of urban housing and into the suburbs, uh, where they really dove into um, single-family home, home mortgage lending, uh, and also, I think, pretty much almost single-handedly financed the shopping center boom of the 1950s and 60s. Uh, they also built a ton of office space in the suburbs. Um, shopping centers and suburban corporate campuses were just these huge areas of investment for life insurers in particular. Uh, and that was something I'd never come across in the historical literature on suburbanization or shopping malls. Uh, and I think it's really important. So um, I think we need to know who financed these kinds of product projects and why, uh, which I guess brings me to politics. Um, insurers use their investments in housing, shopping malls, and infrastructure projects uh, to provide evidence that private enterprise could serve as a nation builder on part of the state. Uh, so um, industry leaders regularly depicted premiums as a kind of tax system uh, and eagerly advertised their uh, contributions to the national economy and the built environment as a way um, of avoiding regulation uh, and also supporting their claims that a larger and more active state was unnecessary. Yeah, I feel like that. I'm still actually I read your book like a month ago and I'm still processing some of the stuff in that sort of section on space and geography. Um, in particular, I think what's interesting is like you think about when you think about the suburbs, like you're saying in the literature, there's certain emphasis on malls and 
you know, now department stores and all this kind of stuff. But really, when you when you think about the suburbs, you should be thinking about those like totally boring insurance office parks that are kind of off the beaten path, um, because it also brought it also brought employees out to the suburbs as well. Um, and in particular, um, one thing, another thing that struck me was not just the shaping of the suburbs, but also shaping what like the modern office looks like, uh, which matters, you know, quite a bit now um, when we're in this space of getting employees back to work, you know, companies are trying to rethink what their mm-hmm. you know, long-term work like place leases look like. Um, and I was particularly distressed by, you know, insurance companies are not just surveilling the people that are being insured, but also their own employees. So, you know, talk a little bit about how insurance companies shaped the office as well. Sure. Um, I ended up getting really into the office buildings. Uh, it's funny, uh, you know, even though insurance companies uh, became builders and landlords uh, during the post-war era, they kind of still remained insurers at heart. Um, so like always looking for ways to minimize risk. Um, and the office spaces that insurers built in the suburbs, sometimes sometimes for their own use and sometimes for other industries, um, these are really innovative spaces. So insurance companies... Um, uh, introduced a lot of innovation. So um, open floor designs, um, for example, which made paperwork uh, and policy processing more efficient. Um, they also made it easier at the same time for managers to closely supervise the largely female white collar workforce. Um, insurance companies uh, more or less like invented the cubicle as a flexible tool for managing space. Um, they were the first industry to offer luxurious amenities at their workplaces as well. So fancy cafeterias, sprawling lawns, abstract sculptures and installations created by cutting edge artists, bowling alleys, hair salons. I mean, when I was writing about these offices, um, I kept thinking about like the Googleplex, you know, as like a direct descendant of mid-century suburban uh, uh, insurance offices. I mean, and it... In both instances, I think it's really tempting um, to, to, to say, wow, that would be a great place to work. Uh, but then you think about it and you realize um, that the goal is always to get employees to work more efficiently, uh, to spend more time at the office uh, and less time uh, mingling with other workers in public places. Uh, and insure, in, in insurance um, executives talk about this a lot, how their new buildings and these new spaces are uh, kind of extracting more efficiency from their workers in all of these uh, um, interesting ways. Um, so there's basically these corporate estates and corporate campuses um, in the suburbs that like, look like country clubs, um, but there's there's something actually very sinister, sinister to me at least, um, about the way they segregate workers from various industries um, and at the same time imp- impose on them like aesthetic, spatial, even psychological forms of control um, in these spaces. So one of the things that I tried to do with uh, the sections of the book that deal with investments in real estate um, is to show how insurance companies brought their zeal for discrimination. Um, so for classifying, pooling, and sorting populations to their building projects. Um, so I guess it shouldn't surprise us that an industry um, committed to separating populations into good and bad risks um, also helped to expand and deepen patterns of, uh, say, race or class-based segregation in the, in the built environment. But again, I think this is something historians have largely overlooked, um, which is, I suppose, why I devoted so much space to it. 
Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's one thing you could also, one other connection you could draw, or I think maybe you do in the book, is this in the same way that the insurance companies are sort of doing all this quote unquote good or offering these really innovative spaces. Um, Google is doing similar things about so making similar moves about, oh, well, you don't, we don't actually need stringent regulation or any of that. So there's some interesting sort of parallel. There's more parallels there than just the space. I think. Um, I mean, the idea that you're going to have these employees that are governing themselves, you know, that right. they're, they're um, kind of actively choosing to increase um, creativity or efficiency in different kinds of settings. I mean, it's pretty fascinating. I want to read more and write more maybe about office space. It's so fascinating. Yeah. And especially too, as like these things are changing, I think it's even more important to like have that full, the full backdrop. Um, this is more, this is maybe a necessary, you know, I think probably the something that probably drove, drew, drew you to this topic in the first place. Um, but what you were talking about with classifying people into good and bad risks. And, um, I think we can already sort of, even if you haven't read the book, you can already sort of imagine how this is not going to be something that is, uh, value neutral or, um, good in any way this is the this is why we can't have nice things part of the story uh where you turn to sort of gender and race-based discrimination and insurance so talk, start by talking about this sort of what you said earlier about good and bad risks um and how that uh creates and reinforces these discriminatory practices sure um Okay, so insurance companies were building segregated housing and suburban office parks and the, at the same time pulling money and jobs out of cities um, and contributing in pretty serious ways to the problem of urban disinvestment in the 1950s and 60s, um, uh, really important ways. Um, at the same time, uh, they were constructing underwriting and risk classification systems that kept insurance coverage out of reach for many Americans especially, but not only black Americans. So risk classification is the process that insurers use to determine cost and availability of coverage. And essentially, um, companies sort people into groups called risk pools uh, that reflect similar levels of risk exposure. Uh, so risk classification systems were first developed and institutionalized in the mid to late 19th century, uh, and Dan Bapp does a really good job telling that story. So you can read Dan Bapp's book about that um, if you're interested in, in that history. Uh, but by the post-war era, most life and property casualty companies had developed uh, really complex classification structures that charged different rates and offered different coverage for married and divorced people, non-married, cohabitating couples, people with and without kids. Uh, and of course, age, place of residence, and biological sex uh, were used as classification categories in nearly all fields of insurance. Um, so activism surrounding insurance companies' use of um, immutable uh, characteristics, um, that is characteristics that people can't uh, can't really change, um, like sex, um, uh, the use of these as classification categories, um, uh, activism uh, sort of surrounding this practice really picked up in the 1970s um, uh, and, and late 1960s. Um, it was really uh, uh, the first to really uh, kind of identify this as a serious problem were uh, civil rights groups um, who uh, uh, created a very robust critique of insurance redlining um, in the, the late 1960s. 
Yeah. So what is insurance redlining? I mean, we, right. I think in the last couple of years, we've really become aware of redlining as it's used in housing, but sort of right. like, give us like the one, sure. one sentence definition. Yeah. Well, uh, Redlining is the process through which particular neighborhoods and regions are denied access to financial resources like loans or insurance, um, typically um, because the residents are poor people of color. Um, and there's been a, a lot of great work, as you note, on the history of redlining over the past like 10 years or so. Um, but, but most of it focuses on the federal government. Um, and that's because maps created by the Federal Housing Administration in the 1930s um, are available and very visceral. You can see them. They marked off whole neighborhoods, uh, typically populated by Black Americans, as bad risks for investment. Uh, and that story is well known at this point, I think. Um, uh, but there hasn't really been nearly as much attention paid to the role of private industry in perpetrating redlining. Um, but analysts in the 1960s, um, like government analysts, um, uh, civil rights organizers, they recognized that the lack of access to private insurance was a major source um, of what people at the time called blight. Um, uh, and there was even a special committee uh, launched by Lyndon Johnson that identified insurance discrimination, insurance redlining as the primary driver of urban crisis. Right? So I examine that idea in one of the chapters of the book, which really focuses on redlining um, and place of residence as a classification category in insurance underwriting. So critics of the industry claimed that uh, um, residence or place of residence was used as a proxy for race, um, uh, which is actually a category most insurers had removed from actuarial tables um, uh, by the 1950s. Mary Heen uh, is a legal scholar. She's written really um, uh, excellent work on this um, development. But um, activists in the 1960s were claiming that zip codes and other geographical markers were simply shorthand for race. Uh, and the insurance industry ended up defending its practices uh, by insisting that their, their decisions uh, uh, were objective and based on statistical evidence. Um, so they insisted that some neighborhoods were statistically, quote, more risky uh, than others. Um, and they really fought tooth and nail um, to get insurance exempted from civil rights protections guaranteed by uh, the Fair Housing Act. Um, so it's a really interesting story that um, if we look kind of beyond these FHA manuals and um, look at what private industry is doing, uh, I think it's really important because you see um, uh, uh, very important uh, um, uh, inequalities being uh, perpetrated uh, or, or being kind of expanded uh, and deepened uh, by private insurers. Yeah. So let's talk maybe a little bit in more depth about how civil rights and feminist activists sort of challenge these practices. Mm -hmm. But as you and I both know, um, they weren't exactly successful in their mission. So sort of tell me about that kind of how that played out. All right. So eventually by the 1970s, feminist activists um, also turned their attention to insurance discrimination. Um, there'd been activity among uh, you know, various civil rights groups, you know, throughout the 60s or mid to late 60s. Um, and uh, the feminists really leveled their criticisms at the industry um, 
uh, in similar kinds of ways. Um, they argued that charging women and men different rates for coverage simply because they were women or men uh, was, quote, sexism in its purest form. Uh, and they have a point in a lot of ways. So I got really into feminist responses to the insurance industry during the 1970s and 80s. Um, it's something I hadn't seen, again, in the literature on feminism in the United States, uh, even in um, uh, work on the Equal Rights Amendment, which has always been a significant like, threat to the insurance industry. Um, and in fact, it turns out that insurance was a major site of feminist activism, especially for liberal groups like the National Organization for Women. Um, so when the battle to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment um, in uh, sort of failed in the early 1980s, now and other women's groups gravitated sort of almost immediately to insurance, uh, an industry that many uh, activists suspected had been like secretly pulling strings behind closed doors um, to stall and eventually tank ratification of the ERA. Um, and again, I've read a lot about the ERA and why the ERA failed and like insurance. Nobody talks about insurance, but if you actually listen to people who are in those battles, they all talk about it, right? Like Gloria Steinem is like insurance tanked the ERA, right? And so it's like, why don't we know more about that? Um, so these w women's activists, like civil rights activists before them, educated themselves pretty quickly um, and discovered what historians of statistics have been trying to tell us forever, uh, which is that the supposedly objective statistical evidence used by insurers is actually highly subjective, right? So some activists, some of these, I mean, I love the, the feminist writing on insurance and Sarah, it's so awesome. Um, some activists even called the, the data that insurers use socially constructed um, and they kind of, they brought this insight, these insights about insurance data into the mainstream in the early 80s. Uh, they launched these very public debates with insurers about discrimination, the subjective nature of industry data. Uh, and the, the big goal for groups like now, the National Organization for Women, um, was regulation, really, that would lead to uh, gender blind or uh, gender blind or unisex in the parlance of the times, unisex insurance. So um, it actually looked like that might happen. Like we might get a unisex um, uh, law in the United States until the insurance industry um, unified and launched a very effective counter assault. Um, in response to feminist charges of discrimination and demands for equality, um, insurers really doubled down on the principle of actuarial fairness as their response to this attempt to um, uh, really change the um, ways in which um, underwriting uh, was done. All right. So you brought in this term actuarial fairness. Tell me more about that. Right. Okay. Actuarial fairness. Um, okay. It's a concept invented by the insurance industry. Period. Like, I think it's really important to make that clear um, because it's an idea that has been exported to other fields, um, you know, since the 1970s, 1980s. It's widely used in economics. Um, there's great new work uh, that's happening as we speak on its application to AI uh, in the form of so-called algorithmic fairness. Um, and really, the main idea behind actuarial fairness is that risk management systems are, quote, fair. Uh, when individuals bear the cost of the risk they bring to a given pool. Um, so uh, the idea is that people who have been designated as less risky uh, do not subsidize people who are designated more risky. That's the idea. Uh, it's one of the kind of fundamentals of insurance underwriting, and it's the primary justification that insurance companies use to defend their risk classification structures. And I don't know. I mean, it sounds good, right? Who wants to argue with fairness? Uh, but it's a deeply problematic concept, um, both socially and within the an insurance context. So in debates with feminists over discrimination, uh, insurers depicted 
um, subsidy, subsidy uh, as something disturbing or even kind of morally suspect. Um, and yet it's impossible to have insurance without subsidy, uh, to spread risk across groups without some people paying for others. So every time you pay a premium uh, and you don't make a claim, that payment finds its way to someone else who does make a claim, at least part of it, right? That's how insurance works. The healthy subsidize the sick, the young subsidize the old, the lucky subsidize the unlucky. Um, and in fact, true actuarial fairness is impossible. Um, to achieve it, every single individual would have to be placed in their own unique risk pool. And at that point, we're basically talking about savings accounts, uh, not insurance. Because uh, again, insurance is fundamentally a risk-sharing project. And of course, like actuarial fairness is also um, uh, like socially problematic. So within an insurance context, it's kind of BS in the sense that it's not actually possible. Um, and then when you look at the social context, um, I think actuarial fairness and the risk classification structures that it's used to justify are also um, very troubling. So um, when insurance companies designate a person as a bad risk, um, and that's always in quotes, this is the industry terminology, uh, that designation can make it impossible for that person to participate fully in society. Uh, and when insurers designate whole groups of people as bad risks, uh, simply because of their group status, then we have a really serious problem that I think should give us all pause. Like insurance companies discriminate in ways that would make most Americans very uncomfortable in any other context. Um, and this is why I think it's so important to educate people about insurance and its history, really, um, because insurance companies have played a major role in deepening and perpetuating economic and social inequality in the U.S. over the past 75 years. Um, and I really think that we won't be able to address or like remedy those inequalities if we don't understand where they came from, uh, how they persisted and why uh, attempts to change them um, have faltered. Yeah. And I think what's great about your book is that you approach these questions first and foremost from not only a governance standpoint, but a, like attention to private industry standpoint as well, paying attention to both pub the public and private dimensions of inequality. Oh, thanks. With that in mind, yeah, with that in mind, um, we'll move to kind of the conclusions of the, some of the key takeaways and conclusions of the book. Um, I think when I was reading the end, my one question I wanted to ask you was, um, what keeps you up at night? What are you worried about based on some of these findings? Because the end of the book introduces a lot of stuff that's both like super terrifying and also like already here. Um, so things like trackers and wellness programs. Um, but I'm also, as somebody who does regulatory governance, like this, what you were saying about how this actuarial fairness concept has kind of gotten imported into other literature is also like kind of alarming to me in lots of ways. So having concluded this work, like what's sort of on your mind uh, with this kind of topic? Yeah. Um, these are such great questions. Thank you. Um, okay. So I think there's, there's certainly a lot to be concerned about, um, especially when it comes to our data and the control that private corporations wield over it. Um, the movement of discriminatory insurance logics into other fields and institutions like policing and paroling. There's great work on that. Like that's also really scary and disturbing, but I'm an optimistic person. And um, these days I'm feeling hopeful, especially hopeful about health insurance. Um, we still don't have an egalitarian universal system for delivering healthcare in the US, um, but programs like Medicare for all um, are really gaining in popularity, I think, especially among young people. Um, 
And at the same time, more and more Americans have come to believe that healthcare is a human right uh, and one that shouldn't be connected to profit, uh, that the government has a responsibility to provide. Like if you look at the polling, you see more and more people like every year saying that they think it's the government's responsibility to provide healthcare. Um, so there's more resistance to private health insurance today than ever in my lifetime. Um, and I think activists are doing a, a lot of work to reveal the discriminatory impacts of insurance rating and pricing in other fields as well, um, like auto and home insurance. Um, great, you know, there's a lot of um, organizing around these questions. Um, and it's easy to forget, uh, but most Americans had never heard of quote, like structural racism, like less than a decade ago. Like that's a relatively new term. Uh, Black Lives Matter and other recent activist groups uh, have done a lot to change the conversation about race and discrimination in the U.S. Uh, like recently, it's so easy to forget how recent all of that is. Um, and I think that as that conversation continues and as more people um, uh, start thinking and talking about inequality as something that is structural um, and embedded in institutions, I think folks are going to start looking much, much more closely at insurance. Um, and I really hope that my research can contribute to that, um, in, even in a small way to that process. Yeah. And then related to sort of like connecting this to what's things that are not only changing fast, but also going on right now, I think there's an opportunity here to connect this conversation to something that's really sort of affecting all of us right now, which is, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and what you were just saying made me actually rephrase what I was going to say. So there's a question about, you know, how has this in process by which risk and security has become individualized and how that's sort of being used or how that's affecting how we think about and respond to the risk of COVID-19. But are you also seeing changes in how we think about risk as an individual thing um, that are sort of giving you hope or optimism? Such good questions. Um, okay. Uh, I know, sorry. Also complicated question. No, it's really good. Um, okay, so it's too early, I think, to know like exactly the impacts of, of the pandemic on the national conversation about insurance. Uh, but it's definitely highlighted the gross inequalities that exist in this country when it comes especially to healthcare access. Um, so many Americans have been forced to work under these really dangerous conditions uh, to keep their employer-sponsored health insurance benefits, you know, and others are working two, three or more jobs in the gig economy to scrape together enough money to afford high co-pays and prescription costs. And like, I know none of that is new, um, but I do think that COVID has drawn more public attention to these problems. Uh, but to answer your question, something that I think about all the time, but that I don't hear other people talking about. Um, is the changes that are kind of unfolding as we speak in the way Americans think about social responses to risk. Um, so if you take the whole debate over mask wearing, for example, um, when you think about it, it's really a debate over how to manage risk. Um, and there's plenty of Americans who essentially embrace the insurance industry stance. Um, they think of risk as an individual responsibility um, and kind of resent those who ask them to take into account the welfare of others when deciding how to respond to danger, like a global pandemic. Um, and yet, there are many, many more people um, who have willingly worn masks and altered their lives, not only to protect themselves and others, uh, but because they understand that some threats or some risks demand collective responses. Uh, and I think we're in a similar situation when it comes to climate change. Uh, like Americans are finally beginning to realize that to survive and thrive in an uncertain world, we need each other. 
uh, and crucial, even like like long neglected ideas like mutual aid, interdependence, solidarity. Uh, and at least, I mean, I hope that's the direction that we're moving in. Again, I'm kind of optimistic. I hope we are. Um, and I, I don't know, I guess deep down, I believe that understanding how those ideas, those really crucial ideas came to be neglected in the first place might help us get to a... <laughs> maybe a, a place that's not so scary um, and um, at least uh, help us get to uh, a situation where we could start um, managing collectively um, some of these, um, these problems that are being individualized uh, currently. Yeah. I mean, in some ways it's like knowing how this individualization of risk was constructed and like knowing that it was constructed helps us think about how to like unconstructed or deconstruct, you know what I mean? Or construct something new, right? That's why history is um, awesome. I know. That's what history does best. <laughs> no, it's like, that's what we do here. Um, speaking of office space. Um, okay, so thank you so much. I might have just one more question and this is, I'm, I could, I would rather do the whole interview about this one because I am fascinated <laughs> about what uh, is next, but, you know, tell us sort of what's next for you and sort of what you're working on right now. Okay, um, I'm currently working on a new project on the history of astrology in the United States during the 20th century. Uh, so I guess you could say that I'm moving away from risk and toward uncertainty. Uh, I don't think I'm alone in that. Um, it's an interesting move. Um, horoscopes and other astrological materials, um, I think, make up like this massive untapped archive, like one that can help us understand how non-elites especially managed uncertainty in their uh, daily lives. Um, I'm also fascinated by financial astrology uh, and the use of astrological methods to, produce, uh, to predict business cycles and market fluctuations. Um, and the therapeutic nature of astrological consumption and typologies and personality typing and fate versus agency. And I could like, I could go on and on about all the things that are, that are interesting to me about this project. Um, it's big. Um, and it's actually kind of tough because very little has been written about astrological practice and consumption in the 20th century. Uh, so I guess, um, anyone out there who's listening and knows about work on astrology in the modern era, um, send it my way, please. Um, and um, tell me if you're working on it because I need interlocutors. <laughs> Amazing. I, I look forward to the, you know, figures in the book that are like, you know, the best astro TikToks or memes or whatever. Um, there's so much, I can just imagine there's so much primary, like fantastic primary sources to work with in that type of project. You've got to um, kind of create that archive though. You know, it doesn't exist in one place. You have to kind of go out there and find it. And um, yeah. it's exciting. That's like kind of half the fun actually. Like I think sometimes oh. we overrate like, oh, I've got this confined archive. Um, all right. So that is all I have um, for you today. So... Thank you so much for your time. This was fantastic. Um, Thank you, just Ashton. Yeah. <laughs> it's really just, fun. Yeah, just as a reminder, everyone listening, um, that's, I've been speaking to Kaylee Haran about her new book, Insurance Era, Risk, Governance, and the Privatization of Security in Post-War America. And that's out now from the University of Chicago Press.